0: There's some guys that kind to of bring some Bibles around. Want to grab one of those today. We're going to be in Mark chapter 16. And as they're doing that, uh, I, I kind of want to lead into this morning uh, Easter uh, sermons, to be quite honest with you. Lots of pastors don't like them because it's kind of like one of those things. Everybody knows what you're going to say before they get there. You know, and they're like, it's Easter. And everybody kind of knows the story of the resurrection. And, and there's kind of like no way, you know. To be quite honest with you, there's pressure put upon pastors every year to make sure that, like, that's the one sermon uh, that's, like, got to be great. And you're just like, how can I say something that's going to be so great and so life giving, uh, but everybody already knows what you're going to say before they get there? Uh, and I have to say, this year I've been really excited about getting up here and doing Easter for you, which is kind of new for me because uh, I, I've not always felt that way, and Christmas has always been another one of those, and to this year I'm just kind of pumped up about it. And a lot of it, I think, comes from this idea of, of the way, the lens that I've tried to look at Easter from uh, this year. You know, because lots of times we like to think about Easter, and the conversation starts with, you know, there's... Uh, you know, there's this need for uh, our sins to be taken care of. And Jesus comes on the cross and, and comes and lives a life. And then he goes and he's killed and he's crucified on a cross. And his death on the cross takes care of uh, the issue of sin for us. Now, Jesus, when he shows up, he is like uh, in a culture. And he's in the picture of the cross is the perfect picture for the culture of that time. Uh, this last year, as I started like reading scripture and wrestling with it a lot, one of the things I noticed in the story of the scriptures that we worship a God who uses whatever pictures and whatever images make sense to the people of the time that he 's trying to communicate to to help them understand what he 's like, what he 's up to, and what he wants to be known for. Like you see the story of Abraham and he takes his son Isaac up to the mountain to sacrifice him, which to us seems so foreign, so strange. Uh, and Abraham wasn't shocked at all about it. And he goes up there, and then God, at the end of the story of Abraham and Isaac, uh, if you don't know the story, you can read it in the book of Genesis, but uh, Abraham uh, takes his son up to the, to the mountain to sacrifice him because he feels that God has told him that he should sacrifice his son uh, on an altar because that's what a lot of the gods at the time required of people. And at the end of the story, God says, Whoa, 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 whoa. Abraham, hold on. And then he provides a lamb for the sacrifice. Instead of it falling to Abraham to create some sort of sacrifice to give to God, God says, I will provide the lamb for you. And it's a picture that stood in stark contrast to all of the other gods of the time. That this God is a God who is different. This is a God of mercy. This is a God of grace. This is a God of love and compassion And he's moved by love, and he does whatever he can to show us that he's different. And as time kind of progresses on, and you see the story kind of continue to unfold, God kind of uses whatever he has at his disposal to speak to the people he's trying to speak to in that time and in that place to show them what he's like. And Jesus comes onto the scene, and there he is living amongst people who live in a sacrificial system. And then Jesus does give His life as a sacrifice to show people that He has taken care of it. He's provided a way to deal with your guilt and your sin that seems to separate us from God. And He dies on a cross. And Easter has become the culmination of the Christian faith. I mean, when you think about uh, Christianity, you think lots of times people start the conversation talking about a need to deal with sin and Jesus is that remedy for that. And there's albums written by artists talking about the remedy and, and Jesus comes to kind of take care of all of those things for us. Now, we've talked about Lent as kind of a period that leads up to Easter. And what we celebrate in the Christian faith every week, Christians gather on Sunday, which was not considered originally to be the Sabbath day. We gather on Sunday because that was the day. It was the first day of the week in which Jesus resurrected. And we gather to celebrate the resurrection. And one time a year, there is the big celebration We call Easter that marks the time when Jesus resurrected from the grave. And then we gather all year, once a week, and each one of those little gatherings is like a miniature celebration of this one big celebration of Easter. One of the funny things is here at City Spring, we hardly ever dress up, but it's like everybody shows up today and thinks, oh, we should look nice. And you do, you look great. You know, my shirt's a little tight, but I haven't worn it in a while, and I didn't realize I gained some weight, okay? So I'll just say what you're wanting to say. You know, one of my buttons is quivering, okay? And so, <laughs> uh, you know, but this is what, this is the big celebration here. Now, in Christian traditions, you know sometimes as Christians you kind of dive into things and, and you might have been raised in a church and you hear people say things and you didn 't even realize it you know you just kind of grew up knowing that this is what you're supposed to say, and you didn't even know entirely why you said it like one of the things that we did in my church growing up is uh, people would stand up in, in the, the, the gathering, the church service, and, and the pastor would say, "He is risen," and it was like without any sort of like pause, the people kind of in unison would respond, he is risen indeed. Like that's just kind of the, you know, and so you kind of grow up and you're just like, hear someone say he is risen and and you would know, somehow you would just know, you say he is risen indeed. The tradition was born out of this idea that all of the other gods died. Caesar, I mean, the earliest Christians uh, lived in a world where Caesar would say that he was a god. But something always seemed to kind of ruin that for them because the God would die and he would disappear. And the Christians saw their faith, saying that we do not worship Caesar who will die. Because our God is risen. He died, but then was resurrected. And then for some people who like the, the skeptics out there that would say, Oh, did Jesus really raise? They could point him to people and say, You should go talk to so-and-so. He literally saw Jesus. He had a meal with Jesus afterwards, like he was resurrected. They say that more than five hundred people saw the resurrected Christ, spent time with him, maybe even like watched some March Madness. I'm not real sure, you know, but like they were like got to see him, hung out with him. Like Jesus didn't like resurrect and then just to show up just on church service days. Like he spent a little bit of time with them and taught them a little bit, but then just did life with them for a little bit before he ascended into heaven. And like there was witnesses. And so the tradition was born that, like, people would say, "He is risen," and then people would always respond, "Well, he's risen indeed." And people would say, "Indeed," because they had seen him; he was there, and it got passed down from generation to generation. And one of the things that uh, I think is a, a great practice for us uh, within the Easter tradition is to look at the story of Easter, and just reading it has value, doesn't it? We had a little video, hopefully you could keep up with the words as they popped up on the screen, you know, telling us the story. That was the passage as it was told in Mark. There are four Gospels in the New Testament that tell the story of the resurrection and people who are like skeptics of the Christian faith will say well each one of those gospels has like a different uh, a different account like they'll have details like one person will say there was angels and another person will mention soldiers and another person won't mention soldiers one gospel will say they didn't tell anybody right away and then others will say they ran immediately and told people but one thing that seems to kind of ring true about every single one of the gospels uh, and stands out in contrast to me is the idea that the tomb was empty It was empty. There was a great book that came out a few years ago called The Case for Christ. And he talks about how uh, he used what would be considered the courtroom logic in talking about the resurrection and, and the stories that we see in the Gospels. And this guy was an atheist before he started this whole thing, hoping to kind of set out to disprove Christianity. And he ends up writing a book saying, well, after I've done all my research, I actually think that he really did raise... He became a Christian, shared his writings, and then became uh, actually a pastor and starts talking to people all the time about what he learned in this process of discovery. And today I want to read with you uh, from Mark chapter 16, and it's just the story of the resurrection. You might recognize parts of it, and you might think, well, I thought there was a little bit of it. Look at Matthew, Mark, or or Matthew, Luke, or John. You might find other parts of the story that you might remember as a child. Uh, And here's kind of how it says. It says, When Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome, I think that's how you say your name, bought spices so that they they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early, on the first day of the week, we call it the weekend, but Sunday's the first day of the week. On the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb, and they asked each other, who will roll away the stone from the entrance of the tomb? When they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus of the Nazarene who was crucified. He has risen, he is not here. See the place where they laid him. Go and tell his disciples and Peter. He is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Hindsight's kind of 20-20. Have you ever noticed that? Like you can look backwards and say, Oh, yeah, that kind of makes sense now. I can see how maybe that was kind of working itself out in the process. The disciples, when Jesus was crucified, there were a few days, you know, Friday night, Saturday there, they were probably wondering what in the world just happened. And then the resurrection comes, and suddenly like light bulbs start coming on, they start remembering, oh, wait a minute, he did kind of tell us that this was going to happen. He did say he was going to be crucified. He did say on the third day he would be raised again, and the people start piecing together parts of the puzzle of the Easter story. And one thing that I love about the Easter story is the reminder that from death, life can spring forth. From death, life can spring forth. Which is hard for us to kind of imagine, because lots of times, I mean, unlike Jesus' experience, most of us have had someone that we love and we've lost. And you don't think after you've lost them, oh, I'll see them next Wednesday. At least you don't plan to, hoping that you don't end up dying as well. <laughs> I mean, in most situations, when you lose someone, they're gone. But the story of Easter tells us that life can spring forth from death. I sometimes think that God has planted within our creation like little reminders of his truth. Like, for us, we think death is the end, but really, life kind of can come forth from death. You see, I think God has been trying to give us all sorts of little clues and reminders as to what He's up to, and though there is this experience of death that it isn't, all that there is. And so He puts little hints and clues within His creation. I mean, uh, most of us would say that following the season of fall every year, and the leaves literally die off of the trees, and there's this season that we call winter, or others might call hell. Uh, yes, right? Um, and it wasn't this bad, this, that bad this year, right? Uh, but we go, we go through Easter, and we, or we go through Easter, we go through winter, and we think to ourselves that winter is symbolically like a dead season, I mean, green disappears from our surroundings except for that one tree that we chose to use for the Christmas tree because it was the only one that was green, right? It was the only one that showed any sorts of signs of life. And then what happens? Following winter, every year we have spring. And there's somehow miraculously on my tree that's just been nothing but little twigs, a little red bud will start to form. And you can start to see life spring forth there in the midst of the death. You thought the tree was dead, but then it was almost like it came back to life. Now, what we know is some people say, well, it wasn't really dead. It was kind of dormant, and your grass wasn't really dead. It was just dormant. Uh, But I think God gives us that picture. I mean, even the way we are sustained physically has a death-to-life kind of thing happening. If you think about the food that you eat, the food that we eat, the stuff that's really good for us at one point in time was alive, right? And we would even say the stuff that was, uh, we use the word fresh, because it just sounds really morbid to talk about, the stuff that's just most recently dead. Right? The fresher food is actually... Better for us. Fresher food can give us better life. This explains the nutritional value of a Twinkie. You know, like, you know pretty quickly, like, Twinkies were not recently alive. You know, if there was any life ever in a Twinkie, it was a long time ago. And that's why it doesn't give us the life that it, other foods can give us. We know, you know, like, the plants give their life. For us. We know this rule to kind of be true, and God kind of implants it in our surroundings all over the place, that from death, life can spring forth. And Jesus shows up on the scene, and he comes, and one of my favorite scriptures in all of the, the, the scriptures is where John tells us that Jesus said, uh, he gives this passage, and he starts talking about sheep, and uh, the sheep knowing his voice, and then he kind of ends this saying that there's a thief that comes to steal, Kill and destroy, bring death. It's almost like he's been here already. Some of you guys already know he's been here. It's not a prophetic statement saying he's going to come. but There's a thief that has come, and he's trying to steal, kill, and destroy. And Jesus says, but I came so that you would have life, and life to the full. Another way you can kind of say this is that Jesus came to lead us back to the life that God intends for us. I mean, his, his whole initiative is to come on this earth and then just lead us back to life. Life found in, in the creator. The one who created this whole thing had a plan, a design, and it's been stolen from us. It's been, uh, we've been duped, if you will. And Jesus says, I came so that you can have life and life to the full. But for many of us, when we start thinking about life and life at its best, or the life that God, the Creator, has for us, there seems to be a distance between where I am and where, what I feel like God created me to be. Like, if you ever think about the picture of Adam and Eve, minus the whole nakedness thing, because most of us would be mortified to be naked in front of people. I mean, when we think about Eve, we think of, I mean, some texts even translate it as paradise, which is not necessarily the most accurate way of translating it, because it's probably more like a garden, a well cultivated garden. But God created the world with us being at peace. I like to remind us regularly, and I hope I do this well, and if not, I'm going to try to do even better. That the world was created with peace. Hebrew people used the word shalom. and In the world, that peace was the, it had peace in multi-facets. There was peace between man and God. The text tells us that God and Adam walked in the garden, there was peace between them. There was peace between uh, man and himself. He wasn't worried about being naked in front of anybody. The reason why we would be ashamed about being out there, you know, naked is because of what happened. There was peace with yourself. Anxiety hadn't shown its ugly face yet. There was peace between each other. Adam and Eve were at peace with each other, and they were at peace with if there were other humans in, in the space. I believe they were at peace there too. And there was peace between man and the environment. God had given them the task of working and ordering and creating and and being a part of what was going on in the creation. There was peace there. For some of us, when we think about what God created for us, the life that God intended for us, there's this gap a margin between what we experience and where uh, we think God really wanted us to live. And I asked the question, like, what stands in the way of you experiencing life at its best? If Jesus says that He came to give you life and life to the full, what is it that stands in the way between you and that Life. I mean, most of us would say there's some, like, my life is not perfect, and I'm sure yours isn't either. Most of us would be able to, could point to these different situations and scenarios, that we'd say, man, if I could change something, I would change that. Like, this is not necessarily life at its best. No one in here would say that their life is perfect. But we've kind of come to this place where, like, man, maybe this is just the way it's going to be, and there's bits of it that might be true. But there's something that stands in the way of us experiencing life at its best. Now, sometimes we can name it. Like you might be able to name it, and you say, "Well, it's because I have a boss that's this and that. My workplace is driving me crazy. If I could work somewhere else, I'd probably be better." Some of us would, you know, say, "Well, you know, my my complaint is, you know, my coworkers are X, Y, or Z, or I have these in laws, or my wife's driving me mad." You could name it, some of us would even say that it's not, you, you can see the the peace situation there between your work environment, that's tension in one of those spaces that God created there peace, do you get that? See that? There's also that person at work that's driving you crazy, a lack of peace with others. Some of us could say, well, my problem is I have laziness or I have an issue with my own value or feeling of self-worth and And that drives me to kind of do things that maybe aren't the the thing that are keeping me from having life at its best. and It's a lack of peace within myself. We name it other things. And maybe others of us have doubts and questions about whether or not God really even cares. Is He even present in my story? Does He even know what's going on? And I keep praying, and I don't seem to be finding all these answers what in the world's going on, so there seems to be like this lack of peace between us and God, and we name it all these other things, but to be quite honest with you, I think the best thing that we can do is just identify it as well, this is the product of the thief that's come to steal, kill, and destroy this last week I was Trying to think, I had, this, I had this story, you ever have stories in your head you can remember little bits and pieces of them, but you can't remember the whole thing, like what was going on? I was asking my brother about it and I could not, I, I feel like at one point in time we had a bird or a bat get in our house. Have you ever had like an animal get in your space and you're trying to figure out how to get them out? And you're like, come on, let's go, and you have the doors like wide open and every window and they just can't quite figure it out. Uh, so I started YouTubing this last week because I thought, man, this I've got to find a way to be able to show this picture. I found this video of this dog. Uh, they'll explain it a little bit. I want to set it up for you. This guy has a, one of those glass screen doors on his front door. You know what I'm talking about? But the glass is out of the door. And watch this dog. Check this out. What the dog doesn't know is that there is no glass or screen, but this shall go out. Go I. You waiting for me to open the door. let I? Can I open it? Can I open the door? I'm gonna open it, so I can open it because I can reach out. Let's go outside. <laughs> Do you want me to open the door? Here, hold on. I'll get it. <laughs> Steps Come on. Isabel. You want to go tight? Drop it. Come on. Go tight. Watch this. Here, this I'll, is get I'll get it. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that hilarious? The dog was, was like so trained, he's so used to it being a certain way that even though the glass is removed, he has no clue how to um, like approach the situation. And honestly, I think his rhythm and his routines got him so trained to just believe that he can't go until that door opens. I watched another one where the door, the door was actually open uh, and this little dog, like the door was wide open and the little dog just thought it was closed. And the owners were throwing, like, treats at him, trying to get him to come in. And he was, like, standing there at the door, like, even doing his, like, little circles. Like, let me in, let me in. I kid you not, the owner walks over to a blank space in the air, takes his hand, grabs nothing. Like, the door is wide open. Grabs nothing, acts like he opens it, and the door comes, the dog comes running in. Like, oh, okay, good, I can come in now. I had to wait for you to, like, symbolically, I guess, let me in the door. Now, I show you that because what we see in the, the story of Easter and what we celebrate in the story of Easter is that Jesus opens up the way back to life for us. He opens the door for us. The ladies, as they go to the tomb on, on Easter morning, and they ask themselves, who's going to open this stone? Who's going to roll away the stone for us so that we can go in and prepare His body? They get there. The door is open. The stone has been rolled away. The issue they already had in their head that was going to keep them from being able to to do what they needed to do, it's removed. The tomb was open. And Jesus, in a way, is like showing us, listen, I'm going to open up this tomb and I'm going to lead you back to life. And now many of us, we've celebrated the death of Jesus. We've come to faith and believe that we needed Jesus' death to take care of our sin because we have a sin issue that was separating us. There was guilt that separated us. You know, and it's it is so true. Like, if you've ever wronged somebody, what naturally happens? You, you try to avoid them, don't you? You ever had like one of those moments when you know there's like some sort of weird tension between you and maybe you did something or they did something and, and you, you know, you know there's that weird kind of tension where there was an offense that happened. Now sometimes they just offended you because you would never do anything wrong, right? And you like see them at the grocery store and what do you do? Like oh dear goodness, and you, you wonder are we gonna talk? Are we gonna run into each other? How's that gonna work? And then you realize they're avoiding you. You know, that's what happens when there's guilt, when there's some sort of offense. We naturally try to avoid the other person. When sin steps onto the scene, people and God, there was like this. There was this gap. Now I believe that God pursued mankind and has been pursuing us since the beginning of the story. But we just kind of feel that sense of guilt and shame. And so we kind of hide and, and avoid and, and say that we can't really, you know, well, there's no peace there and I'm not sure I can work it out. And I'm honestly, I'm not even sure if this, because some theological people would say, well, I'm not sure if that's entirely true. I honestly think that God is standing there with his, door, his arms wide open, like the father in the story of the prodigal son, saying, come home, come home, come home. But instead, we're still trying to find ways to extend our spring break. Trying to find another way, maybe this will work out so I don't have to go back and be humbled before my Father. Maybe if I try this, I can find a solution there. And we try to avoid and, and the gap there. And like you, you may have come to this point where you realize there was this tension and gap and separation between you and God. And so you look at the faith in, uh, your faith in Christ and you say, Thank you, Jesus, for dealing with the sin on the cross. And you feel that sense of okay, I've been forgiven because Jesus came and died on the cross, and so you celebrate His death, you celebrate His burial, but you may feel like you're just like. It, here's another way of saying it. like when we get baptized in Christianity, okay, uh, Christianity, there's like this symbolic kind of moment we celebrated not too long ago, where baptism is a physical sign of something that's happened inwardly. And we celebrate baptism, and there's like this moment. If you've never seen a baptism, there's this moment where you take the person, and you know they say, "Baptizing the name of the Father, they, they, I say, I baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit." And then there's this moment where we place the person under the water, and you do it backwards because that's what you're supposed to do. I'm not sure why why we can't just take them forward, you know, but we, we go backwards. I think it's because when you lay somebody down to die, when they've been dead, we don't ever lay them face down. Does that make sense? So then we, I answered my own question, didn't I? Uh, and then you bring them back up out of the water. And we say that's symbolic of our identification with his, his, Christ's life and his burial, death. And then we come back up out of the water symbolically saying we identify with his resurrection. Some of us have no problem saying I needed his death and his burial, but we are... You know, like Jesus leads the way, so we identify with him. So us, you know, we say, hey, I went, you know, he died on the cross for me. I identify that. He went to the tomb. Identify with that as well. And then when the, the, the resurrection comes, we just kind of stay hanging out in the tomb. You know, you, you've experienced the, the, the sacrifice and the burial. You're just kind of stuck, kind of meandering in the tomb. Because really, what's been told to us sometimes, if we're honest with ourselves, is that we just really needed to deal with the sin issue. And that life, you know, the eternal life is going to happen someday after I die. I know that I can stand before God and I know that I'll have life eternal someday. But what Jesus comes to show us is like, there's actually life here Now, and he's like the tomb has been opened, the stone has been rolled away, and some of us are just kind of like the dog. We run up to the door, it's open, but we think it's closed. We think there's no access to life outside of that space because we just needed to be forgiven for our sins. And so, really, like the Christian story has kind of been reduced down to this idea of reminding people how sinful you are and how much you needed God to forgive you of your sins, and that you are, you know, I'm I'm not perfect, I'm just somebody who's just been. Forgiven, and forgiveness is the whole story of of Christianity, but it misses the mark because the tomb was open, and Jesus leaves. It's not like he was just sitting in there doing his devotions, waiting for the ladies to come get him. He was gone. The angel says, or the dude in the white robe says, he's not here. He's risen. He ain't here. For you and for me, we think that God wants to give us life, and we think of the the, the idea, and I know some of this isn't even new for you, but the idea gets so planted in our head that we have to deal with our sin, and you get forgiven, and you know that there's this daily issue that still kind of pops up, right? You've experienced, you know, you know, salvation and you call yourself a Christian and then there's still that one little thing that you wrestle with or you still feel like you want to slap that person. You know that can't be from God. You know, or you have that moment where you're just like, I'm still wrestling with this sin or I'm still, I'm not perfect. And so what that naturally makes us think is that we're still in the tomb, right? That's the stuff that needs to die. And so we just kind of wallow in it and we wrestle in it, and we just kind of stay in the tomb. Meanwhile, I feel like God's standing there at the door saying, if you'll follow me, you'll follow the way of Jesus, I can lead you into life. In our tradition, and our little movement here at City Spring, is that we believe that God can remove sin from our lives. Some people call that a holiness tradition, meaning that there's a way to become holy. And you find holiness by following God's leading. When Jesus' example is laid out before us, we start wrestling with, and, and by no means, this doesn't mean you, you become perfect overnight, but those things that are tombish, those things that are the death, Jesus wants to lead us out of them through His Spirit. Some of us, need to simply accept the life of Christ, not just His death and His burial, but we have to start choosing to accept the life of Christ. God provides a way. And that way is by following Him in love. But if we were honest, when God Spirit comes to the door and shows us here's the way to life you need. I want to show you how to deal with this issue. Greed crosses the threshold or arrogance or lust or whatever it is that's there is the door and it seems like the door to your tomb. When Jesus comes to show us, hey, I want to wrestle, I want you to wrestle with this. I want to show you what it's like to live this way. I want to, I want to free you from this and give you life at its best. The life I've always dreamed for you to have. We stand there before the door, and it's not that the door's not open, it's that you aren't open. You're not open to his leading. So I don't want to wrestle with that right now. I'm good with just being forgiven. I don't want to be open to that because that means I have to apologize. Well, I don't want to be open to wrestling through those issues because that could be really embarrassing or maybe people at my work will see me differently or, man, my mother-in-law, will she'll never let me live it down. The tomb is open, but you aren't. Your heart isn't open to it and you aren't open to Christ's life that he wants to give you. So we just simply find ourselves content wallowing and wandering in the tomb. But when you start being open to the life that Christ has for you and you realize that the tomb was open, you open your heart and you start following his leading. This is That's the only thing that, like if I've ever run into somebody who has a hard time believing in Christianity. I mean, you've heard this before. Even Gandhi says, you know, I love your Christ. I just don't like your Christians. When people have a hang-up with our faith, it's because we aren't. There's people out there. I shouldn't say we aren't. There's people out there other than us. That's a joke for those of you who are listening online. I had a face that said I was joking. Okay, guys? There's... There's people in our world that say that they're following Jesus, but they aren't openly wrestling with things. And people look at them and say, well, I kind of can get the idea of needing, you know, I understand. I haven't maybe fallen short, but I don't think that I want to be like them. That says nothing about our Christ and says everything to do about, has everything to do with our unwillingness to be open to his leading in our lives. If you don't get anything else from this morning, when you screw up, when you know you've fallen short, the difference is the in following Jesus and being a believer in Jesus is that when you step forward and say, I messed up. And you don't just pray a prayer and say, God, forgive me. You go and you talk to the person. You be open to showing them And then he might even have an opportunity to say, you know what, I'm trying to follow Jesus and I just don't believe that's the way he would have wanted me to do it. And it's that simple. But we don't want to be open to it sometimes, do we? We want to be, I want to challenge us to be open to the life that Christ has for us. The kind of life that walks out of the tomb and follows the Spirit's leading. The kind of leading from God that leads us back to life and it is a journey or to use another word that i think feels a little bit more old school it's like a pilgrimage and this life of faith stepping through the open tomb back to life it's not complicated but sometimes it can be difficult but are you open are you open to it For some of us, we have these dreams of who we could have been or maybe should have been. Man, that thing happened in my life, and ever since then, I've never been able to kind of rebound, or I went down this path, and it took me another place, or that friend led me someplace that, you know, I really wish I would have never gone. You know, it's never too late to live the life that you could have lived For some of you, you're like, that's not quite possible, Matt, because I'm not as young as I used to be or whatever. But to live the life that you could have lived, to live the life that you could have had, you can follow Jesus, and I believe he will lead you towards that life. And it's never too late to start. So the question that we all have to answer is, do you believe the tomb was open? And what's that mean for you and for me? Can you be open? Because Christ has shown us the way. Are you open to the offer of life that Christ gives to you? Are you simply forgiven but not alive? And do you want to come alive? Let's start following the leading of Christ. I believe that we have. The celebration of Easter to give us this reminder every year because every year things happen, don't they? And there's always something new to wrestle with. There's always more, it's kind of like your laundry at your house. It just seems to keep coming, doesn't it? The trick is staying open. May you celebrate the resurrection of Christ. May this Easter be the mark of a moment when you decide that I will be open. And as God lays on your heart and mind challenges that are keeping you separated or keeping you from stepping into life and out of the tomb, may you say yes, Lord, and step one step at a time. And may our lives be marked by humility not just the fact that we say we're forgiven. And as we live more and more alive, may it change our world and our community. Let me pray for us. Lord, I thank you for uh, just this Easter Sunday. The tomb was open. Lord, as we celebrate, may we also evaluate and look to see in what areas have we closed ourselves off to you. Lord, even as I prepared this message, there were things that you were showing me that I needed to be more open to. And so, Lord, as we celebrate the culmination of this Christian movement and we say he is risen, he is risen indeed, Lord, we We ask that we would be the kinds of people who live out their faith in such a way that we look the part of people who believe in a resurrection. And may we, through the resurrection and following Jesus, figure out and find this life and life that's in its fullness it's in the name of Jesus who brings and makes all these things possible for all of us. It's in his name I pray. Amen.